or what he is doing. He is simply, as the barman at the ancient golf club said, at large in the world. When I left Scotland after that memorable visit, I was on my way to India to study philosophy and practice meditation at the ashram of the Indian seer Aurobindo. When I reached my destination, I became absorbed in the discipline I found there, and the memory of my time in Burning Bush began to recede. In that austere and devoted place, adventures on golf courses seemed a frivolous waste of time. After a year and a half in India, I returned to California. It was then that Shiva's irons began to haunt me. I began to hear his voice, making the same suggestions he had made to me during our day together. I on fetal aphoria air swung, the sentence came like a litany. Sometimes I would hear him as I was falling asleep. In the summer of 1961, Richard Price, a classmate from Stanford, who had become fascinated with the latent possibilities of the mind, heard that I was living in San Francisco and came to see me. Before long, we had conceived a plan for an institute in Big Sur, on my family's old estate there, and our dream soon became a reality of sorts. Not the one we had talked about exactly, but something like it, something recognizably in the direction of an ashram and forum where East and West could meet. About that time, memories of Shiva's took an even stronger hold on me, that someone so mystically gifted should be a golf professional, and such a proficient one, filled me with increasing wonder. One night in Big Sur, after a particularly rousing and exhausting session of something called psychological karate, I was drawn to the box of papers I had collected during my trip to India. I found the notes I had copied from his journals. Seeing them again in Big Sur, so far from the kingdom of Fife, brought back the experience like a flood. Suddenly the feeling of it all, the smell of heather and those evanescent vistas of purple and green, were there again in all their original intensity. I decided that the time had come to re-establish contact. The next day I wrote him a letter. Months passed without a reply. But my desire to hear from him continued to grow. I wrote a second letter sometime during the summer of 1964, but still there was no reply. I wrote a third to his friends the McNaughtons, but it was returned without a forwarding address. By then it was well into 1965, and I was caught up in the full tide of those utopian days at our institute. We were becoming famous, at least in certain circles, and for a while it seemed that we were on the verge of some immense discovery. We were planning a residential program with a huge array of disciplines for stretching the human potential. The idea behind it was to develop astronauts of inner space who would break through to dimensions of consciousness not yet explored by the human race. But it soon became evident that breakthroughs could be in the wrong direction, that we were in for a longer haul than some of us had thought. Our more ambitious programs began to founder as some of our astronauts came crashing back to Earth, and we began to learn that the programming of consciousness was an unpredictable venture. This sobering change in perspective was reinforced by what we saw happening in the Big Sur country around us. Thousands of young people from all over the United States were coming down the coast highway looking for some final mecca of the counterculture 
And during the summer of 1967, the summer of love, it seemed that most of them wanted to camp on our grounds. They came with dazed and loving looks, with drugs and fires, swarming into the redwood canyons and up over the great coast ridges, many of them polluting and stealing along the way. The air was filled with a drunken mysticism that undermined every discipline we set for the place. Late that summer, I got hepatitis. Convalescing, I resolved that I would visit Burning Bush again and find the man who embodied so much of the life I was aspiring for, so much that was lacking in that summer of chaos. But a slow recovery and the adventures and problems of our institute kept me from the journey for another three years. I was not able to arrange a visit until the summer of 1970. I'd come to England with a group of friends, and as soon as I could, I rented a car and drove to Edinburgh and thence to the Kingdom of Fife. But what disappointment! Shivas was long gone. Where he was, no one knew. The Burning Bush Golf Club was rich with the smells of leather and burning logs, with quiet good cheer and mementos of a treasured past, cross swords and tartans, enormous trophies and pictures of ancient captains staring down from the walls. The bartender, my one link with that day in 1956, fondly reminisced about his extraordinary friend. I learned then that Chivas had never actually worked for the golf club itself. He had been a teaching professional in his own employ. He had wanted it that way to preserve his peculiar teaching ways. Oh, there was no one else like him, that's for sure, the barman said and smiled wistfully. Sep for Seamus, and he's gone too. Seamus Macduff, whom Shivas called his teacher, had died a few years before. So had Julian Lang, the town's remarkable doctor, who was another of Shivas' special friends. Evan Tyree, the well-known golf champion and his most famous pupil, had gone to New Zealand in some mysterious land deal. And the McDoughton family had moved to Africa. All the people I had met fourteen years before had vanished, except for this good-natured, rotund barman, red-faced and grayer than when I had seen him last. I introduced myself, suddenly aware of how important he was, my last link with Shiva's irons, conceivably. Liston's my name, he said, reaching out a hand. Just call me Liston. Christian name's Sonny, but the men here call me Liston. He slipped me a glass of scotch, and then another, and we spent the afternoon reminiscing about our departed friend while he served the club members and kept the fire, which I remembered so well, burning brightly. It was amazing to watch him come on to the people here, he said. He was so different with each and every one, if you watched him close, so I can see what you mean when you say he changed his shape. I watched him for so many years, watched him grow up, you know. He was more fascinating the more you watched him. My wife used to say that she could tell when we'd been together, said I picked up his way of talking and gesturing. Funny thing about that, she liked it when I'd been around him, said I seemed to like her more afterwards. I asked him if he had any idea about where Shivas might be. No idea at all, he said. Something was getting to him, though, toward the end. He talked a lot about the need to move on. Heard him say that to the people here before he left. Sometimes, too, he talked about his needing to help the poor. 
He shook his head as if he were puzzled. And then there was quite a bit of talk about his gallivanting. Twas said he had some problems with the women. Twas even said he was a little off when it came to the ladies. He pointed a finger at his head as he said this. But of course, twas said about him generally from time to time, just a little off. Again the figure was pointed at the head. But he was aye good to me, and a great one for singing and enjoying. No one else could sing a ballad like him. After more conversation, it became apparent that Liston still missed his friend keenly, and was telling the truth when he said Shivas had left no traces. No one in Burning Bush, it seemed, knew how I could find him. I left Scotland in a heavy depression. I had waited so long to see him again. A place in my consciousness had been prepared for our eventual meeting. The depression lasted until I decided to write this book. Writing it would summon his presence, I thought, and indeed it has. Digging into my memory for clues to his character and state of mind has yielded unexpected insights. Once I began to write, I realized that that one day in 1956 had enough in it to last me a lifetime, especially if I put some of his admonitions to work. Having completed this work, I realize there was far more to Shiva's irons than I have been able to capture. Some of his enigmatic remarks, all those journals of his I never opened, and the unexplained events of that day in 1956 constantly remind me of that. There is much about our meeting that is still obscure. I have decided to put forth what I have, however, rather than wait for the day of final clarity, which may yet be a long way off. And also, I must admit it, a hope lurks that this slender volume will lure its real author out of hiding. A footnote regarding his name. As I have said, Burning Bush is a fanciful name for the actual golfing links in Fife upon which my adventures took place. The same is true for the names of three or four characters in the story. But I have left the name of my protagonist intact. Shiva's Irons was the appellation he had carried all his life. It is so unusual that I have looked up its etymology, and indeed there are records of its origins in history. Shivas, or Shives, is a Scottish family name, which was known in East Aberdeenshire as early as the 14th century. A district there has sometimes been known as Shivas. Shivas Regal is a famous Scotch whiskey. In Scots dialect, there is a verb, shiv, or shive, which means to push or shove. There is also a noun, shive, which means a slice of bread. I would prefer to think that his name derived from that, since he offered me the very bread of life in his presence and wisdom. I could find no connection, though, with Shiva, the ancient Hindu name for the god of destruction and redemption, perhaps the oldest of all living words for deity. That was a disappointment, but I have consoled myself by remembering that direct etymologies are not the only sign of interconnection. The name Irons was known in the region of Angus as early as the 15th century. I have not been able to trace a clan connection for it, however, or for Shivas. Every bit of knowledge regarding his ancestry holds great fascination 
I find, increasingly so, as my hopes of seeing him again continue to fade, for perhaps the family history will give me some clue to his character. The Scots word iron, or irn, is interesting in this regard, for it means a sword. That it came to mean a golf club suggests an important turn in the Scottish character. Indeed, it also came to mean a part of the plow. Turning swords to plowshares is, as I like to see it, one of the chief promises the game holds out for us. Shivas Irons. It is such an appropriate name for the man. What did his parents have in mind when they laid it on him? Another Scottish philosopher, Thomas Carlyle, said a name surrounds us all our life like a cloak. And what mystic influence does it not send inwards, even to the center, especially in those plastic first times when the whole soul is yet infantine, soft, and the invisible seed grain will grow to be an all-overshadowing tree. A name can shape a life. And if his soul took birth to do the work I found him doing, how well his parents sensed it and named him for the task. Golf in the Kingdom The pro shop at Burning Bush stands behind the first tee, some thirty yards from the imposing clubhouse. The little building seemed familiar as I entered, for I had read about it in a book of memoirs by a famous Scots golf professional. There was even a sense of deja vu as I looked around the place. I could have sworn I had seen the little man behind the starter's desk before. He showed me the clubs and shoes he had to rent, studying me as he did with a sly curiosity. I could tell he was watching as I waggled some of the woods and irons. Are you looking for a game? he asked. I said that I was, having heard so much about the difficulties of burning bush links and its well-known obstacles, I felt I could use some support and guidance going round it. Are you an American? he asked, as he fussed with his equipment display. Yes, I am, I replied. A tourist here? I'm a student. I've heard a lot about Burning Bush and always wanted to play it. I had a dream once I played it. What are you studying? Philosophy. I'm on my way to India. He watched me put on a pair of golf shoes and choose the set of clubs I wanted. Well, I think I can get you a game, he said after a moment's silence. There's a professional here taking someone for a teaching round. Maybe you'd like to play along with them.